Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller like me, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. Today, of course, we are so excited to have Danielle Krissa um, with a big, important art book, Now with Women, Profiles of Unstoppable Female Artists and Projects to Help You Become One. Um, Danielle Krissa is an artist. She's curated shows in D.C., L.A., San Francisco, Toronto. She's spoken for TEDx, Pixar, Oprah.com. She's the writer and curator behind the gorgeous and inspiring contemporary art site, The Jealous Curator. I love it so much. I've been turned on to so much beautiful artwork from that, that one place. Um, and her book, are total bestsellers for us here at Skylight, every single one of them. Um, and I love how beautiful and friendly they are uh, with a real understanding of uh, just the creative life. Um, one day I happened to be flipping through your inner critic and um, I came across this, um, this quote that then like is now part of my life. Um, An artist cannot fail, it is a success to be one. And it's just like, you know, it's like they're full of these types of quotes. But it, when you find it in the right day, it can really make a difference. Um, this book today has been such a success. Um, it has been called respectable, intelligent, holistic, confident, feminine, diverse, exciting, inspirational, beautiful, emphatic, excellent, wonderful, vibrant, clear, encouraging, galvanizing, stunning, pioneering, vital, and thrilling. Let's please give her a warm round of applause. have to get a photocopy of that. Um, hi, everybody. Um, so first of all, has anybody heard me tell my story before? OK, you're going to hear it again. OK, it's the origin story. It's like my Marvel story. I have to, yeah, I have to do it again. <coughs> um, so basically, I wanted to share um, my experience. Oh. I'm going to aim it towards you. But OK, I'm so loud that I never need. Should I do this instead? Should I take it off? I don't feel like I need it. You don't need do it? Do I need it? No. Can you guys hear? I do need it? Okay. How's this? Ooh. Yeah, now it's like all jazzy. Hi, everybody. Thanks for coming. Um, okay. But now I feel like I'm behind here. Okay. And I go over here. Um, okay, so basically I want to tell you guys about my story and the ups and the downs of it and um, basically how I got to where I am now. There was a lot of aha moments along the way and um, hopefully those will um, hit a nerve with you and maybe, you know, so many creative people have similar stories and so hopefully there will be something in this that um, affects you and helps you move forward in your own creative journey. So can I see how many people here are artists? Awesome. So everybody knows what a critique is. Everybody knows about, oh, even her. Everybody knows a little bit about rejection, a little bit about blocks, inner critics, all of that good stuff. So that's sort of what I want to talk about. And then I'll get into um, how the Big Important Art Book came to be and a whole bunch of things that I sort of learned even outside of just being about women artists, what I learned in the last two years of putting this book together. So um, 
how many people were art kids when you were little, like that just had to draw and make stuff constantly and yeah, put it up on the fridge and all that good stuff? So I completely was that person too. And uh, I made all of my friends gifts, even if they wanted store-bought things. I designed the big banner behind our grad class. I was the head of the yearbook committee for design and uh, lived and breathed art. So of course, when it was time to go to university, I applied for marine biology. Uh, my dad is a PhD scientist and my mom is an artist and I mean they were very supportive of whatever I wanted to do but it just felt like who goes to school for art like that seems crazy and frivolous um, so I'll be I'll be responsible and I will go for marine biology so I did my first year and I did fine uh, but whenever I didn't want to do homework I would draw and paint and do all my art kids stuff and so right at the end of my first year my dad my PhD dad phoned and said what are you doing you need to switch into fine art. He said, you have been an artist since you were a baby and you need to do that. And I said, but like, what about food and rent? And he said, you know what? It doesn't matter. Do what you love and the money will come. And if it doesn't, you won't care because you'll be happy. So I was so excited. The art kid was going to go to art school. I switched into fine art, showed up in September with all my supplies and I was ready to go. And I did not fit in at all. Uh, which was a bit shocking for the art kid. And so this was in the early 90s, and it was a super conceptual school, and everybody was wearing big boots and dark makeup, and I was wearing a matching sweater set from Esprit. <laughs> so already, some cards were stacked against me. But I still was totally confident. I was still like, I'm the art kid, and I just thought I was awesome. So I just kept making art, and um, I got slammed in every critique. But... I, it didn't really bother me, weirdly. I, I learned how to defend myself. I learned how to speak about my work. I got a thicker skin. And those are all really good things. It's the silver lining on the little dark cloud that was my BFA. But I learned a lot. And, you know, that kind of thing serves you very well for the rest of your life in, you know, work and in everything. So that was all fine. Um, I did, however, learn a lot of do-nots right off the bat. So... This was drilled into me the entire time. So, do not be funny, or you will not be taken seriously as an artist. Do not be female, or you will not be taken seriously as an artist. And do not get paid, or you will not be taken seriously as an artist. So, that was just drilled into us as a truth. And so, when you're young and impressionable, and your teachers are telling you this, basically, you listen and you believe it. So, my work was humor-based. Um, you know, I've only been talking for a few minutes, but by the end of this, you guys will know that I am hilarious. And so I was like, okay, quick, I can't do anything about being female, so I'm just going to strip all of the humor out of my work because I want to be a serious artist when I grow up. But a huge part of my personality is being funny, and the whole point of art is to express yourself and your personality and your work. And so here I was stripping away 85% of who I was to be taken seriously. And, you know, I grew up in a nice, white, middle-class family in a small town in Canada. Like, I had no angst. So I was just like, I'll paint with black? Is this, is this not funny? I, like, you know, I don't know. And so I just did not know what I was doing. I was floundering because I didn't have anything to draw from. And um, so... But again, I forged ahead. And so about six weeks before I graduated, I was a painting major. And the painting prof was actually the head of our whole fine art um, 
department, and he did not like me, and I did not like him, um, but that was fine, and I'd been that way for years, and so six weeks before I graduated, and I brought my paintings over from Res, because I never painted in the studio, I felt so paranoid, came over from Res with my little five pieces, uh, and got ready to be bashed, but he loved it. He loved everything, and he said, oh, I've never seen anything like this. You found a new niche. This is amazing. I was so happy, you know, six weeks to go, and I'd cracked the code. So at the end of that class, he said, you know, there's a visiting artist coming from New York, which was a huge deal. This was on the west coast of Canada. So this guy was coming from New York. We'd studied him in art history, and he was going to be in our class. He had time for three people to show who wanted to volunteer. Well, nobody. Everybody was terrified, but I had just found a new niche, so I put up my hand. So one week later, I showed up with the same five paintings, and I hung them up. I had not touched them. I went first, and what was supposed to be a 10-minute critique went for 30 minutes, and I was completely torn apart, led by the professor who had said the week before that he loved it. And I was so shocked. I was just so blindsided that... You know when you get that lump in your throat and you can feel that you're going to cry? And I was like, oh, I am not crying in front of these people. <laughs> and so I just said nothing. So all of my defense skills, all of that stuff I'd been honing for years was out the window because I just couldn't even talk. So um, about 27, and the visiting artist didn't say a peep. He just watched me react. Um, at one point, he kind of came over and gave me a little wink like, hey, kiddo, don't, don't worry about it. But... It was a train wreck. Um, so about 27 minutes into the 30-minute critique, the painting prof, the head of the painting department, said to me, a painting major about to graduate, you should never paint again. Uh, so that was the day I met my inner critic. That was the day the art kid no longer really felt like the art kid. And, you know, if that had been a one-off event, I could have dealt with it and moved on. Um, but it was three years of getting knocked down and then being lifted up so high in that one critique that I'd finally figured it out and then just being thrown back down again and I just couldn't get back up. I was just a little bit broken and I second-guessed every stroke. I second-guessed every idea. I just, and I believed that as a truth. You should never paint again. And um, for whatever reason, I believed him. So I graduated. Um, I tried to paint. I just couldn't. Um, I took a year off. Uh, went and lived in my parents' basement and cried. So that's a really healthy thing to do for a year. Um, but uh, yeah, I just stayed down there for as long as I could and then decided to go to design school. So I went to design school. My Esprit sweater set fit in perfectly at design school. I was the top of my class. I, um, I got a job right out of school. I became a creative director. I won all of the awards I was supposed to win and I successfully ignored art for 15 years. Um, and I jokingly say that art was kind of like that boy that really broke your heart who you still kind of love but they crushed you like a bug so I would just be like you know I don't even care about you but like what are you doing oh no no and I I tried to avoid it but it, I loved it so much and so I did make things but I, and then I would throw them away I didn't want anyone to see them my my boyfriend now husband he didn't even know I made stuff because I was afraid that well I was never supposed to paint again so I didn't want anyone to find out that I'd done anything. And I wasn't painting, mind you. Um, I was doing collage because I was so terrified to paint because, you know, you can't spell painting without pain. So that was, that was my problem. Uh, so, yeah, I hid out in design for years and years. Um, I 
when I had my son, I'd been working for maybe 15 or 16 years, I had my son and I decided to stay home um, until he went to kindergarten. And so how many people have kids? So you know when they're two? Yes. So when he was about two, I was like, okay, I need a creative outlet. <laughs> I can't watch any more Dora. Um, and so I thought, well, maybe now is when I get to be an artist. So I started Googling around for artists that I, you know, might like. And, um, oh, I found them. I found thousands of them. And Instagram wasn't even invented yet. Can you imagine? Um, so there was... It, there was just so much stuff, and part of me felt so inspired, and I thought, oh my gosh, I'm going to run out and buy the canvases and be the next great artist of my generation, and then like 10 minutes later, I would think, oh, God, what's the point? Everything's been done in every color better than I could ever do it, so I'll just make nothing again. And so my husband um, was probably tired of hearing me, um, and he's also a social media strategist. So this was in 2008, and he said, why don't you start a blog? because my bookmarks list was so long of people I loved. And he said, you know, you're a visual person. Why didn't you collect it all up visually so that you can see what it is you're liking? Because every time I found an artist I like, Scott Listfield is here, love Scott. I would find Scott's work and be like, I know, I'll do astronauts, you know? And then I'd find Stephanie Vovis's work and I would think, wait, no, I'll be a photographer. And I was just all over the map and I was like, what do I want to say? And I honestly did not know. And so, by having the blog and having to write every day, and I mean, the things I write about are quite different, but after a while, you can start to see a pattern. It's like, oh, there's a palette emerging, and oh, I, think, I like things with text, and I like things that are really clean, and it kind of helped me develop my own voice. Um, and so if you ever feel lost, like you're trying to develop your own voice, a really clever way to do it is to start a bunch of Pinterest boards, just private ones, and say you like landscape. Start gathering landscape, and you'll see that, oh, you actually just like really simple bands of color, where my landscape preferences might be, you know, vintage-y looking ones, and you start to see these things emerge, and it kind of helps you create your own style. So that's what the blog did for me. Um, the super smart husband also pointed out that I was letting jealousy eat me alive. He said, you know, um, if you keep jealousy inside, it becomes poison, and it will eat you alive, which is what it was doing. He said, but if you can say it out loud in a positive way, you can turn it into admiration. And I said, I know. I will call it the jealous curator. And the jealous curator was born. And that's what I was doing. I was curating people that made me jealous. Their work, their, where they'd been showing, their amazing studios. And it was crazy. Like, within six weeks, I wasn't jealous. I was excited and I admired these people and I, you know, was, had turned this into a fuel in a way and suddenly I was making again and um, the amazing thing that came out of it was the community because suddenly I'd felt alone for 15 years. I didn't know other people had that voice saying, you suck, you suck, don't make anything, throw that away before anyone sees it. And then I was writing about these amazing full-time people who would then write me and go, oh my god, me too. And I was like, what? How is that possible? And then just other people who are exactly like me. And it just, it made me realize that I was a part of a club of hundreds of thousands of people, that I wasn't so far from alone, um, and that I'd wasted all these years feeling that I was alone. Um, so about two years in, I was approached by Chronicle to do a book. Um, I think they thought I would do a coffee table book of things that I, you know, my favorite 200 posts. But I was just telling Carrie that, that things just, I watch for patterns and comments that come up over and over, conversations that keep happening. And at this time, 
the talk of creative blocks kept coming up over and over and, and self-doubt. And I started to realize like all of these professional artists are also human beings. So they get blocked. They have that little voice. But they also show their work and they also show up every day and they make work. So I was like, um, how the hell do you do that? Please tell me. And so this book was 50 interviews with artists from around the world about tell me your secrets. Like how do you show up and you know, get this stuff done. I chose to quit for 15 years. That didn't really work. Um, they don't do that, and I wanted to know the answers. And this book has been hugely successful because they were so honest, and there was no bravado, no ego. They just said it. They just said um, how hard it was, and they also gave tips and tricks of how to get through it. They each gave an unblocking project to give you a jump start. It was amazing. Um, so I was having all these aha moments as I was traveling around for that book. Include, I came here too. And um, I started to notice that no matter where I went, no matter the age of the people, the country, whatever, I had the exact same conversations after every single talk. And it kind of broke down into sort of 10 buckets of like these similar things, like these truths that it meant to be a creative person. And my editor said, you know, it's not very fair that you're the only one having these aha moments. You should really put this into a book and let everybody benefit. So then I wrote Your Inner Critic is a Big Jerk because the common denominator in all of those problems that everyone was having was the inner critic. So there was things like making excuses. So my big go-to is it's a bit too bright in here. So I'm just not going to work until the sun goes around the corner, and then I'll get started. And then I go in, it's too dark. Um, you know, and then it's like, well, it's 4 o'clock. Ooh, but I have to make dinner at 5. So what's the point? You know what? I'll come back in after dinner. No. Um, and so I reached out to my Instagram, Facebook crowd just to see, you know, what their go-tos were. And it was the same stuff, but I will tell you, a huge number of people, it was their cat, cat, the cat is on my paper, the cat is on me, the cat is scratching at the door. So if you want to be a successful artist, I think get a dog is, is what I picked up from that. Um, I'm just going to quickly skip through this. One of the big ones is being precious. So you know when you get that canvas or the perfect piece of white paper and it's just like up to you to ruin it. And so I had a studio full of beautiful, clean canvases that I, did I turn, oh there, that I didn't want to touch because I was afraid I was going to ruin them. And that is a huge problem. Again, I thought that was just me. That is everybody. So just ways of getting around that, right? Like take that perfect paper and rip it into 12 small squares. It's ripped now. You can't possibly show this piece because it's got a ripped edge, although you totally can show something with a ripped edge. But it will just free you up to be like, okay, now it's wrecked. Here we go. Let's just play. Um, sometimes I get my son to make the first mark. Now it's his fault that it's ruined. And it's up to me to like work around it and turn it into something. So it, you have to take that preciousness away or you will just stare at a blank, you know, square like a deer in headlights and never ever make anything. Um, so one of the things that I like to do with, I don't know if I should make you guys do it. Maybe. Um, so when I talk about inner critic, do you guys know what I'm all, like does everybody have an inner critic? Can I see a show of hands? Do you know what it says? Like, does it have a go-to thing that it generally says? Yes? Do you, is that in your head right now? Like, can you think of what it would be? Okay, so everybody stand up. And I want you to turn to a person that's nearby you. You might have to go in threes if there's not, if it doesn't break down properly. You have to do this, and you're not allowed to apologize, and you're not allowed to hug anyone, and I want you to yell that thing at them. 
Ready? Go. <laughs> it's hard, right? Sounds like a lot of polite yelling. <laughs> okay, you, you can sit down. Are you done yelling at each other? I bet some of you didn't even do it, right? So would you ever, ever in your life turn to a stranger or a friend or a child or anybody and say those things? No. So why do you say it to yourself? You know, it's mean. It's not really true. Um, and it's just on a loop in your head. And it has to stop. Because you have to stop yourself and think, if I wouldn't say this to someone else, why am I saying it to myself? And so one of the main things that kind of kept coming when I, again, asked my social media crowd, the landslide winner was, um, you're going to fail anyway, so don't bother trying. So what I want you to do next time you hear that little voice, even if you're just making Thanksgiving dinner and you know that your mother-in-law is coming over or whatever, and the voice is saying, your cranberry sauce sucks, I want you to stop and write down whatever it says. If someone is around, yell it at them. You may want to warn them, especially if it's your mother-in-law, actually. Um, warn them that you're going to do this. Um, if nobody's around, yell it in a mirror. Because it's kind of like, you know when you have a nightmare and you don't tell anybody about it and it just kind of bug you all day, but as soon as you say it out loud, it's just really dumb usually. And um, it's the same with inner critic. It, it can just be this floaty thing in your head that seems like a truth, but as soon as you say it out loud, it's like, well, that's really mean. I would never say that to anyone else. Um, so write it down and then flip the page over and write the positive opposite. So for example, um, you're going to fail anyway, don't bother trying. The positive opposite of that is, oh, I'm going to fail, like a genius. Because you have to fail in order to become a genius, right? So you have to try again and make mistakes and keep on going. And so if you want to talk after about how to flip that thing around, just come and ask it. Because it's really hard when it's your own thing. You kind of just can't figure out how to flip it around. So if you can't figure it out, let me know and we'll, I'll help you. The other thing with the inner critic I always say is to name it to personify it, again, not to make it this floaty thing. So I was talking to some high school students and asking what they call it, because I actually don't really like the term inner critic. It's so negative. And so I said, what do you guys call it? And there were mini-me, and there was all these different things. But this one kid put up his hand and said, I call mine Arlo. And I thought that was awesome. I was like, I want an inner critic named Arlo. So I tell everyone, name it. Name it Tim or Janine, or whatever it is, so that it doesn't seem intimidating. So if Tim shows up in your studio, Phil, or Phil arrives, you can say, you know what, Phil, nobody needs to hear you right now. Get out. I'm busy, and I'm making stuff. Um, and so if you do those two things, I mean, it takes time, but if you practice and you do that over and over and over, you start to be in control instead of your inner critic being in control. And, um, and I've done it because I was running around the world telling other people to do it, and I thought, wow, I better practice what I preach, and I make art now. What? Yeah. Um, okay, let's see what's next. Oh, yeah. Okay, so there I was running around the world uh, trying to tell everyone else to do this, and then I actually did get over my blocks. It, you know, I was making again. Uh, I'd gotten past my inner critic, Arlo. I, I stole the kid's name. Um, and so now it was time to readdress this. I realized these were not truths, and it was time to actually get to work. So First one, be funny. So now you can see how funny I am, right? And so I thought, that's the first thing I want to put back in. Um, and so 
but I still had insecurities about it. That was still, you know, it had been so drilled into my head that I couldn't be a serious artist if I was funny that I started reaching out to other people that I could ask. So do you guys know who Wayne White is? He actually lives around here. Um, Wayne, are you here? No. Um, so Wayne was in my creative block book and uh, was so generous with his answers. And then I have a podcast. So I was like, oh my God, I'm going to ask Wayne to be on my podcast. I literally had a garbage can beside me in case I threw up when I was talking because I was so like scared and like I love him so much. And his work is really, really funny. Um, do, is there anybody that doesn't know him? Do you remember Pee Wee's Playhouse? He did all the set design for that and the puppets and the voices for a lot of them. And um, he's from Chattanooga, but now he lives in LA and he does, well, he does all sorts of things. But one of the things he does is these paintings where he gets thrift shop landscapes and then he'll work text into them. And they're really hilarious sayings and there's a lot of swearing. So I apologize for the children that are here because there's a few slides with swears. Um, and so, uh, but when he came out on the LA art scene, it was like people were like, yeah, no, like that's not real art because people would come into the galleries and laugh. Apparently, you're not supposed to go into a gallery and laugh. And so, um, like I said, Wayne, every second word is, is the F-bomb usually with Wayne, which is quite hilarious. And so I had him on the podcast right when I was thinking about this. And I said, you know, how do you deal with that? Like, how do you, what do you say when people say that you can't be funny? And uh, he said... Um, and I thought, that's one of Wayne's pieces. I thought, you know what, if Wayne can say that, so can I. Just because, you know, I'm a lady, I can say that too. So um, this was on December 11th that I talked to him, and so three years ago. And then on December 20th, um, my son was home from school for the whole holidays. And I, one of the things to get unstuck is a one-a-day project. So I thought, I'm going to do a collage a day over the holidays, and they're going to be funny. And so the morning, I was lying in bed, and... Uh, I just had my eyes closed still, and I had this vision in my head of a blob of paint with one of my little collage guys standing on it. And I said to my husband, I have to buy paint. I hadn't bought paint in 20 years. And he was like, well, okay. And uh, I went out and got paint. I followed all my tips and tricks for everyone else. I ripped up a whole bunch of little squares of paper. I got only my favorite colors of paint, and I just started playing. I did a washi bloom. I did a thick stroke. I did a combine some colors. Ooh, that was terrible. I threw that one away, and I just kept going. And then not every little person belongs on every blob. So I would go through and I would choose my person. And when they landed on the right blob, a story would pop into my head. And that would be the title. Um, and that was the other thing. My parents had always told me I told too many stories. And so I always tried to pull that back. And I was just like, <laughs> it's time to tell some stories. So my titles became the story. So these are just a couple of my pieces. Seascape sell like hotcakes. So this one is titled, An Art Auction Aficionado, Nigel Knew a Hot Ticket Item When He Saw One. So he's got a little sold dot for his head there. And by the, that sold in about 10 minutes because seascapes do, in fact, sell like hotcakes. Um, this is one of my newer ones. This is on panel um, because I'm starting to work bigger and I find that the paper warps and it drives me nuts. So I'm working on panel. I went to the Venice Biennale two years ago and it was so inspiring it felt like when I, before I started the Jaws Curator, when 50% of me would be inspired and then I'd be like, oh, my collages are so stupid compared to these amazing, crazy things in Venice, right? So instead, I sat by the, I didn't quit. I sat by the Grand Canal and I wrote notes to myself and I, I figured out why it was bothering me so much. And this is one of the pieces that came from it. It's titled, Worried she wasn't cool enough to understand big and bizarre, Francis opted to linger beside tiny and traditional a little bit longer. 
because that's exactly what I was doing. Um, my humor, I use humor to deflect, you know, like lots of people do if I'm angry or whatever. And so given the news of late, I'm able to use my humor and work it into um, my work. And because I'm Canadian and I don't even get to vote or call senators, I need some kind of outlet, people. I need some kind of outlet. The poop emoji on Facebook is not enough. So um, this is one of the pieces. Uh, this was during... Um, the Me Too movement. Jimmy could not put his finger on his favorite part, nor would he unless the artist gave her consent. Because they are, in fact, yeah, little gouache boobs. Um, which is an excellent segue into a book about women. Um, so the way this book came about was that, um, you know, my editor was like, okay, so what's the next book? And I never really know what's going to be the next thing. I sort of wait until I see a pattern and what I, you know, feel passionate about. And this came from two places. One, when I was an undergrad, how many people took art history during their art school? Right, did you learn about women? No, Frida, Georgia, Mary Cassatt. That's about it. And um, so I'd come from my tiny town and I was sitting in those, you know, those art history theater, you know, and it's all cozy and there's the big projections of all the Van Gogh is going by. I was so excited to be learning about this stuff because I didn't learn in my small town about any of this. But about three weeks in, there had been no women, and here I was wanting to be an artist when I grew up, and there was nobody for me to emulate. So I put up my hand and said, you know, were there any women that made art? And my prof was amazing, and he said, yes, of course, um, but they weren't considered worthy enough to document. And, whew, I didn't like that. Um, but it was just a fact, right? And um, a lot of women used to sign their paintings anonymous um, if they wanted to get into shows. Otherwise, if it had a woman's name, it wouldn't get in. A lot of work has been attributed to male artists of the time that it looks similar to. And once those women are dead, and everybody that knows them are dead, there's no way that there can be any more information gathered. So the textbooks are the textbooks. Um, flip to now is that my um, podcast... I've had it for about three years now, and um, I'd say about 80% of the interviews are with women. I never set out to do that. It was just that those, being a female artist myself and a mother, you know, I wanted to hear from other women how they became so successful and um, how do they do it and all these different things. And so, um, again, it's just all about me, really. All of this stuff is like, tell me the answers. And, um, and so I said to my editor who became my agent, I want to do this book. Because I said, my studio and office is filled with big important art books and there are no women in them. So I said, I want to write a big important art book all with women. And she was like, oh my God, I love it. Um, and then I got turned down by five publishers because they said, this was 2017, they said, nobody would read a book about women artists. Oh, the rage, so much rage. I know, do you guys know what Nanaimo bars are? It's a Canadian thing. Oh, they're so good. They're like a, they're like a chocolatey, gooey, coconutty situation. So I went to my local bakery and got a bunch of those and rage ate them alone in my car, because I was I could not believe that that was still being said. You know, they weren't worthy to be documented then, and were not worthy to be documented now. I just lost my mind. But Kate, my agent, said, "Don't worry, we only need one," and we got one. Running press from Philly and New York said, "We love it." Do whatever you want. Um, it was actually supposed to be 30,000 words. It's 50,000 words. They just let me keep on writing. I thought they would edit it because they have to pay for those extra pages to get printed, but they just let me keep on going. Oh, and I just found out on the day it was published, they offered me 
a follow-up that's a workbook with 30 new bios and a whole bunch of projects and places to actually work in the book. So exciting. Um, so it means people do read books about women. Thank you very much. Um, so uh, let me just jump back to this part. So as I'm writing this book and I'm trying to dig up information, there's, there's 45 contemporary bios because um, I really wanted to address what women are doing now. But I wanted to nod to the women of the past, but I also really wanted to talk to the artists of the future, men and women. Um, so I thought, how do I do that all in one book? So it's 15 chapters uh, broken down by different genres, like narrative, portraits, and then each chapter starts with a project to give the artists of the future a kickstart so that you're not intimidated by the amazing art. I'm like, here, you go, go try. And if you want to see women, you know, people that are doing portraiture right now, here are three artists who are doing very different types of portraiture, just so people don't think this is portraiture. It's like, look, do it your way. There's lots of ways to do it. And then sprinkled in throughout that are little historical did you knows about artists that were also doing this as far back as 1583. Um, and so, uh, that's kind of how I built it all, and I was super proud of it because it's, you know, so many women in one book, with so many artists in one book. So to scoot back to this, they weren't considered worthy enough to document. So this is not how this talk was supposed to go. Um, I was writing this talk during the Kavanaugh stuff. And so I'm typing up what I'm going to write about, and uh, I started thinking about art history, and they weren't worthy enough to document and apparently we're not worthy enough to believe, and it just, you know, how is this still a conversation? Um, and then I started thinking about being an artist, and artists are really bad about self-worth too. You know, very often people will, I don't do this anymore, but people will be like, oh, I love that piece, you know, can I, can I buy it? And I would say, oh, I know, you can just have it. You can just have it. It's just like, oh, it's a little thing I made. You just have it. Instead of realizing that there is worth in what I had made. And it's not just a monetary thing. Like, you know, like trade them for something, but realize what you made and your ideas and your opinions have worth. And uh, worth. This is just needs to wash over everybody. Worth, worth, worth. Um, and so... Um, I think that artists can be really insecure about that. Um, they can feel like they were maybe told when they were young that creativity was frivolous. Um, when you become a parent, very often, um, creativity gets put to the very bottom of your priority list, like below groceries, below everything. And um, you have to realize that your ideas um, and giving yourself that time, it's worth it. There's importance in it, you need it. Um, for a long time, I was really worried about my work because it is so simple. And you know, some of my collages take 15 minutes. And I thought, oh my god, how can I charge 500 bucks for something that took 15 minutes? And I had someone on my, pod on my podcast, I wish I could remember, I think it might have been Anthony Zinanos who does really simple collages. And he said, the thing is, he said, that didn't take you 15 minutes. It took you 45 years and 15 minutes. Because everything, my design years, uh, you know, the aha moment with Wayne, the, the going to Venice, like everything that I have experienced has gone into, yeah, it takes me 15 minutes to glue it now, but like I wouldn't have gotten there had I not. So there is so much worth in all of our stories up till right now. It might be 34 years and an hour. It might be, you know, 16 years and two hours. That's all so important and there's so much worth in that. And if you come away with nothing, that is what I want you to come away remembering from this. So the other thing about this book was that 
Of course I'm a feminist. It's just a given. Um, and I didn't want this book to be like, you're women, tell me about being a woman. Like, just tell me about being an artist. There's no books that are like, hey dudes, what's it like being a dude artist? It's just like, hey, what's it like being an artist? So I said, I don't want this to, I don't want to ask them about feminism. I don't want to ask them about their periods. Let's just, let's just talk about how they found their path. How do they work? When do they get stuck? You know, I just wanted to know their stories. I wanted to document them because I have them alive right now. And I can ask them whatever I want. Um, on the podcast, for example, I had Amy Sherald who painted um, Michelle Obama's portrait. I wanted her in the book, but she was kind of busy painting Michelle Obama's portrait. Hopefully I'll get her in the follow-up. Um, so she will go down in history. She will be in the history books, the art history books, for being the first African-American woman to paint the first African-American first lady. Amazing. And that's probably what we'll cover for her. I had her on the podcast, and I found out that, but I also found out that she went to med school because her parents wouldn't let her be an artist, and she dropped out after first year and decided to go to art school, and I believe she paid for it herself, and um, I think, uh, but I know she, she had to have a job to pay for school. She was a bouncer at a bar, because she's about six feet tall. She's a pretty big lady and uh, clearly strong, and she said she did it for about a year and a half, and she said one night she had a guy in a headlock and was escorting him out of the bar and broke a nail and thought, nope, I quit. Not worth ruining the manicure. And that will not be in our history books, but I documented it. You know, and so it's stuff like that that I just love so much because they're just real people. They're real people who have to buy groceries and, you know, get parking tickets and all this stuff. And she also happened to paint Michelle Obama. And so it kind of makes you realize that like, oh, I buy groceries, I get parking tickets. Like, I can also do amazing, great things. And so I like to make them human so that you know that you have lots in common with them and you can do it too. Um, these are the three things that came up over and over and over when I talked to these women that have everything to do with being artists and like nothing to do with being women. It's just an art thing. So the first thing is to tell Phil to get out of your studio. Because they all said you can't make if your vo the voice in your head is telling you not to make. You're not gonna be a successful artist if you don't make stuff. So the first thing you have to do is shut Phil down. So we've already gone over some ways to do that. You have to make time. I wanna make shirts that say, um, to make art you have to make time. Because again, it becomes the bottom of so many people's priority list, right? Um, it's like below grocery shopping, the gym, the this, the that, the that, if I'll get to it and you don't get to it, and it's a crime, right? Um, and so I had this guy in a workshop, he was like owned a vinyl sign making company and probably in his late 50s or something, but he's an amazing collage artist. And so what he would do is he would work nine to five, come home at five, and instead of going into his house where his kids and wife were, he goes into the garage where he has a studio set up and he goes in there for one hour and he works one hour a day and at six o'clock, everyone knows he is now home. Because he said, if I go into my house first, I am never getting back out to that garage. And it's only an hour a day. He doesn't need eight hours. He doesn't need a 10-hour runway. It's like exercise, right? You just need to do a little bit every day to feel like you're living a creative life. And so um, I thought that was a great, great tip. And even if you can only afford half an hour a day, set an egg timer, challenge yourself to do a drawing in half an hour, a collage in half an hour, um, and just exercise that muscle every day so that you're being creative. 
and then showing up, which means actually getting into the studio in those times. Um, if you know that you are not a morning person, don't book that time from six till seven in the morning. <laughs> know that it needs to be another time. Um, and within that showing up, I wanted to touch on the idea of success because I've met so many people who say, oh yeah, I'm an artist, but I'm not successful and I've only been in a group show and blah, blah, blah. It's like, well, was that one of your goals at one point? Well, yeah. It's like, okay, well then that's success. Um, and so I do this too. I'll set these goals, I achieve them, but then I see that like, oh, my friend did a bigger, better thing. And so now my success doesn't count because it's not as big as that success, even though that was never one of my goals. Um, and so you have to stop and celebrate each piece, each rung on that ladder of success, right? And maybe if I see that Joe is showing in New York and I really want to show in New York, I need to celebrate my group show and then climb the rung and decide that my next thing on my list is showing in New York. Um, how do I do that? I don't know. But Joe just did that. Why don't I take him for coffee and ask? Because nobody wants to ask anybody. You don't want to show that you don't know. You don't want to bother them. They're too... What? People love it if you tell them that you think that they're great. Nobody doesn't want to hear that. So I started doing it with friends. I would take them for coffee and say, I think you are awesome. Tell me how you did that. Half the time, they end up telling me that they think I'm awesome, which I didn't realize they thought. And that's nice, because people like hearing that you think that they're great. But then they tell you how they did the thing they want, that you want to do. So don't be afraid to reach out to people and just ask for help. Um, I... I just, I got a gallery, you guys, for the, like, I finally am rep by a gallery. I've been out of art school for 25 years. Um, and so I got rep by a gallery, super exciting, and they put me in a few group shows. And I was like, that's cool. And then, of course, me, I was like, I really want a solo show. But um, I am a Canadian and an artist um, and a woman, so I just sort of apologize for existing um, and don't stand up and say what I want. So you know, through all of this, uh, all this worth stuff, I was like, oh, hell no. It's time to start asking for, I can do it politely, but it's time to start asking. So I just emailed the gallery. And I, this was just a little bit ago. And I said, um, yeah, I love being with you guys and I've loved the group shows. I'm not really sure how one goes about getting a solo show, you know, um, but if you could tell me, like, do you want people to be with you for five years? How did, like, let me cut to the chase. I'd like a solo show. She wrote back, like, maybe two minutes later and said, oh, we just thought you were too busy with book stuff and whatever. We would love you to have a solo show. How's June 2019? Like, holy crap, all I had to do was ask. Now I'm asking everybody for everything because the worst they're going to say is no. If I just sit in my house being a quiet, polite girl like I was taught to be and, and oh, I'm not really worthy of a solo show and, and I don't want to bother anybody. So I'll just sit here. I'm not gonna get the solo show. I'm not gonna get whatever I want. The next thing I wanna do is pitch a kid's book. I have to go and ask for that. I can't just wait for somebody to like give me a kid's book deal. I gotta go and do it. And so, um, you know, that's the thing. Decide what you want, go get it. Ask for help, go get that. And that's how you keep on going. Don't be shy and polite like me. Um, okay, so one more time. Worth, worth, worth. Just remember that when you think of the Canadian lady who tells really great jokes. <laughs> Self-worth is so important, especially at the climate that we are in right now, not just for women, for everybody of any race, age, gender, anything. Everyone has to realize they have worth. And like I said, I did not expect this talk to go this way, but it's just hit me so hard. And um, 
you know, on this book tour, if I can tell that to as many people as possible, hopefully a whole bunch of us will come away feeling like our voices are important and what we do is important and that we should be heard. Thanks, signed a big important artist, which is me. <laughs> So now's the good part where I get to hear from you guys. Does anybody have questions or comments or stories of their own? Yep. Um, well, I've been very jealous of you. Yeah. Yes, that's right. Yeah, that's been one of the best parts for me was just realizing, I think being an artist, especially once you get out of art school and you're not surrounded by everybody, you're alone in your studio and it can be really isolating. And uh, I mean, I thought I was alone and then you talk to everyone else and they thought they were alone. And it's like, actually, like none of us are alone. And when you realize that, it's a, such a relief. It's like 100 pounds off your shoulders. Yeah, it, just, it was like all of that, yeah, just went over there. Yeah. Like, oh. Yay. Thank you. That's amazing. Oh, pricing. Yeah, that's so hard. Um, <laughs> some people do it by square inch, but then again, you have to have a price per square inch, how you do that. What I always suggest to people is to look around at people who are doing similar work and are sort of at a similar level um, because you don't want to overprice and then nobody buys them. And then you don't want to underprice and then now you're stuck at this low price and you're just giving stuff away. So it's there's a lot of research. I would go to galleries that you like and... and Find out how much these things are. Are they $200 or are they $2,000? Um, find your way in the middle. Um, and you want to evolve and slowly scooch them up, but you can get really stuck, right? Like if, if people start collecting you at $500 and then you go, well, hell, I want $5,000. Uh, you've lost that group of collectors and now you have to evolve your work and go find the $5,000 collectors. So um, research is the best thing to do. Um, and again, like, put up your hand and ask. Like if there's an artist you follow on Instagram, DM them and say, hey, can I just ask you about pricing? Um, and people are very forthcoming and very helpful about it. And it'll just give you a sense of where you should land. Yay. Yeah. Well, and that's a woman thing. A, a I, don't, I don't know if that's a man thing. I know for sure that that's a woman thing. Um, and that, that was in my last talk, my uh, inner jerk talk, was about um, one of the ways to shut down your inner critic is when someone says, I like your work, 
Here's the big trick. You say, thank you. And then you stop talking. <laughs> you don't say, oh, thanks, but like I didn't have the pencil that I wanted to use and the paper wasn't quite right and I don't really like the frame, blah, 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 blah. Why don't I just give it to you? Shut up. Say thank you. And the more you do, well, it makes you way more fun to talk to at a party, first of all. And your inner critic starts to not flare up as much because you've shut it down. So it's like, well, she's not even going to listen to me anyway, so why should I spew all that stuff out? And so it takes a lot of practice, especially as women who, you know, and Canadian, my God, you just apologize. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Maple syrup, anyone? Um, and so, yeah, do that next time. And having a price list has saved me because when people would say, well, how much is this? I'd be like, oh, uh, and I, I always say that I, if people email me, I just possum and I play dead and I just don't write them back because I'm like, I don't know what to say. Maybe they'll go away if I don't write them back. They want to buy my stuff, but I didn't know what to say. So I had a friend say, write a price list and then you blame the price list. So when they're like, how much is this? You can say, let me refer to my price list. And then your price list says $425. And you come back and you say $425. And they say, can you do better than that? And you say, no, it's $425. And then they can either buy it or they can go away. The end. There's no wiggle room. There's no yeah buts. There's not like the price list said so. You said thank you. That's it. Worth, worth, <laughs> worth. <laughs> yeah, it's washing over you. Then they can pay $850. I never cut deals anymore because I did, and it is a slippery slope. Um, because then the deals come fast and furious. If it's another artist, maybe you cut them a deal and they give you a smaller piece of theirs. That's fine. I've done that. There's a guy in our town that makes really beautiful woodworking stuff and he wanted a piece and I said, great, can you build us a TV cabinet? And we just traded. So there's still worth in what I made. There's worth in what he made and we did a trade. Um, so I don't know. I... I, I You want to give them a deal, don't you? <laughs> I can feel where this is going. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, that's a personal decision. If they've spent lots and lots of money on you and you feel like they're going to continue spending lots and lots of money on you, you, I mean, you can make whatever deals you want, but you have to feel good about that deal. If you can come away from that thinking, that was good, I got the money that I feel is, you know, worthy of this work, that's fine. Um, it's when you feel icky, and you know when you feel icky. Like, you know when it's like, oh, this is, you know, you're uncomfortable about it. Don't be polite and then make that deal. But if you feel fine cutting them a deal because you know they're going to be back in six months to buy more, that's totally fine. Um, but as soon as you feel that ick factor, realize that, no, you can't do this. Pricing could be a whole other book. Oh my God, it's such tricky business, not only like the money part, but like the psychological part and all of it is just like, but having a price list really does help so much. Anybody else?
like your son here and I just wanna say thank you for like allowing this space for us to come together and it's it's just really encouraging to see that like the time factor is like a lie. Mhm. It's absolutely a lie. Um, I don't know if you guys could hear that, but like feeling like you're too old to, you know, that you've missed the boat or whatever, which is complete BS. Um, there are amazing people who started painting at 80 and then had crazy careers for 20 years. And, um, you know, I just turned 45 and when I had my son, I was 33 and I just thought like I'd quit advertising. I'd, you know, design is so competitive and I was staying home for five years and I was like, well, I've missed the boat and I haven't painted for 20 years and I've missed the boat. And I could have never predicted this life. Like this is insane to me, you know? And so you have to do what you love and just keep forging ahead. And you know, the, the too old thing, when I put it out to my social media crowd, that was a huge one that came back. 25-year-olds think that. Sweet little 25-year-olds. Um, and so, you know, however old you are, it's the oldest you've ever been. And you feel like things are slipping away. But, you know, they're not. All you have to do is just get up every day and go again and go again and go again. And even when it's hard, like one of the quotes from Creative Block that is my favorite quote was from an artist named Amanda Happe. And I'd asked her how she deals with negative criticism. And she said... The great thing is you don't have to care. You can you, uh, never, no, no one can wrestle the pencil out of your hand. You get to keep going in absolute defiance. And when I read that, I burst into tears because I was like, oh my God. Like, I put my paintbrush down. That prof was a jerk, but he didn't put my paintbrush down. And it was my responsibility to pick that paintbrush up the next day and the next day and the next day. And that's how the successful people, I mean, they don't get into every show they apply to. They don't get into every grant. Like, Paintings don't just fly out of them. They make lots of crap too, but they show up and they go again and they go again. I chose to quit for 15 years. Um, now I don't let myself do that. I make lots of crap. I get rejected from lots of things, but I keep showing up because I want this life. So if you want that life, you just show up. And uh, if you can find a community, even if it's a community of one other person, so you have somebody to bounce things off of, when you have a good day, they can celebrate you. You know, if they're having a bad day, you can help them. It only takes one or two people to make you feel like you've got that support. And hopefully you can find them soon and, and just keep showing up every day. Yeah. Yeah. Like I would find palettes. I started to realize that I loved pink. I, I wrote, I still scroll through my blog. It's all pink. And, um, but again, in art school, I was told don't use pink. And I was like, well, clearly I like it. And clearly thousands of other artists are doing it. So why have I stopped myself from doing it? So I was like, okay, pink, you're back in. Um, I did lots of work that was terrible. And that was, you know, I'd find like people that did cool embroidery things in their mixed media. And I would try 
I can't do embroidery very well. So um, it wasn't doing what I wanted to do, so I tossed that. Um, I started to notice, like, I would always write about stuff with negative space. And, I, you know, I'm a graphic designer. So I was like, okay, well, I'll embrace that. I don't have to fill the whole thing. Um, so there was a lot of trial and error and a lot of crap. And um, it took years to find, to find where I, and I mean, I'm still evolving and changing all the time. And, um, but instead of just copying people and feeling lost, I, I just really tried to concentrate on like, how do I tell my story my way and not be hung up on, it's not supposed to be funny. It's not supposed to be pink. It's not supposed to be this. It's not, you know, um, people said, oh, don't work on paper. Cause it's like, because, oh, you, you, then you have to glass it and then it's not worth as much and it should be on, it should be oil on canvas. Like, no, I don't want to do oil on canvas. So I think it was turning 40 really helped. Um, and just being like, I don't care anymore. You know, I was such a people pleaser for so long. And I hit 40 and I was like, nope, don't care. And, um, and so, yeah, there's lots of trial and error. But, you know, I found my way through. And it'll change again. But now I'm ready for that and I'm okay with that. Did you have a question? <laughs> okay, I think we're good. Thank you guys so much for letting me tell my stories. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.